We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stangle. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It is going. Yeah. We're recording on a Monday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a busy weekend. Mm-hmm. But... We still snuck it in because we love you guys. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the coffee has ended. And so this is a real dangerous zone. (laughs) We'll see how (laughs) things go. Post-coffee, pre-dinner. Yep. That's why I mainlined some Ritz crackers and hummus, which I will talk about later. I'm sure you'll hear on the internet my saltine story (laughs) at some point. Yep. That's going on the tiki talks. It's going to be a TikTok. All right. This is our last topic for September before we slide into spoopy October. Spoopy Halloween. Spoopy Halloween. So this week, I decided to change the topic because I wanted to move that topic to October because I got a little too excited about October. Happens to the best of us. It really does. Once the fall urge hits, it hits hard. It does. So this is a topic that I had originally planned to do, I think either earlier in the year or last year, and then I kept pushing it off. And after your <laughs> cramp word segment, I was like, I'm going to bring it back. Ooh. So this week, we are going to be talking about Alexander Turney Stewart. All right. They happen to be a con person? No. But shenanigans will ensue. You will see once we get there. All right, I'm ready. All right. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2016 Atlas Obscura article by Andrew Lenore. 2010 Unbound Smithsonian Libraries and Archives blog post by Elizabeth Perial. Perial? One of those. (laughs) An 1899 The Philadelphia Times article. Britannica.com. TheFamousPeople.com. Two genie.com links, yourdictionary.com, and Wikipedia. Nice. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. Many of us are familiar with the names of the Astors and the Vanderbilts. Mm-hmm. But not many people are aware that a man named Alexander Turney Stewart was just as wealthy as them. And in fact was the third wealthiest man in 19th century America. Dang. But who was he? Because no one knows who he is. Yeah, why don't we know about him? 
Alexander Turney Stewart was born on October 12, 1803, in Lisburn, Ulster, Ireland. His parents were Scottish Protestants, and his father died of tuberculosis just three weeks oh. after Alexander's birth. That sucks and is also scary because the baby could have gotten tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple years after the passing of his father, his mother remarried and moved with her new husband to America, leaving Alexander in the care of his grandfather, John Turney. Oh, so she didn't bring him? Nope. She was like, you stay here. <laughs> I, I just want to be childless for a little bit. Bye. We're going to New York and I'd like to, you know, start fresh. Sorry. <laughs> new world, new me. New world, no me, no baby. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Ouch. John wanted his grandson to grow up to become a minister for the Church of Ireland. So he sent him to a village school at the age of seven, and he enrolled in Mr. Neely's English Academy in 1814 at the age of 11. I'm sorry, that already sounds like a children's book. Why does <laughs> Mr. Neely, why is his class so important that his classroom has a title? I don't know. Maybe he's a famous teacher of some sort. Of a future priest in Ireland. Maybe. School for kids who can't read good. Maybe it was a special um, <laughs> Protestant school. Maybe. Who knows? Because I don't. I didn't look too too deeply into it. <laughs> I didn't click that way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there wasn't a link for me to click to learn more about Mr. Neely. Sorry, Mr. Neely. Unfortunately, his grandfather passed away just a few years later in 1816, when Alexander was 13. And following his death, Alexander was placed into the home of Thomas Lamb, who was an Irish Quaker. Oh, uh-oh. Very different, religiously. Yeah, so he went from, like, you're going to be a priest and go to a Protestant school to, like, Quaker. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oof. Mm-hmm. After graduating from the Belfast Academical Institution at the age of 15, he wrote a letter to his mother in America expressing his desire to move to New York City to live with her. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Get me I would, I would out. <laughs> his sponsor, Thomas, encouraged Alexander to stay in Ireland a few more years to gain some work experience and money prior to moving to America. Uh-huh. So Alexander took up work as a grocer in Belfast. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Quakers were super practical, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's hard to travel if you don't have any money. That's true. In the spring of 1818, still aged 15, Alexander had grown tired of being a bag boy. <laughs> so he packed his bags and boarded a ship for New York with the 500 pounds, or around 30,000 pounds today, that he'd earned while working. All right, then. Alexander arrived in New York City six weeks later, and after settling in with his mother, he took up work as a tutor at Isaac N. Bragg's Academy for Wealthy Children. Well, that's a step up. Mm-hmm. Another story. Another storybook. <laughs> that's another story. That's volume two, The Wealthy Children. Mm -hmm. Where he earned $300, or around $7,000 today, a year. 
He joined the local Episcopal church led by Reverend Edward Mitchell, which is where he met his future wife, Cornelia Mitchell Clinch. Oh, so he married the pe- the the reverend's, reverend's the reverend's daughter. I think his I think his niece. Okay. Well, he really jumped religions though for a while there. He just liked to hop around. Jump around. As long as, long as God up, was involved, get down. It didn't matter. God, 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 God. <laughs> Cornelia was born in May of 1802 to parents James Clinch and Susanna Baker Clinch. Her father was a wealthy ship chandler, which is a retail dealer who specializes in providing supplies or equipment for ships. Nice. That would be lucrative since that was one of the main forms of transportation and transfer of goods. Yep. So she was from a wealthy family. Okay. She was the oldest of nine children, all of which lived Uh, into adulthood. That's impressive and aggressive. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of children. That's a lot, especially if you're the oldest. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back to Alexander... Not much is really known about him for four years, between 1818 and 1822. The only thing we do know is that he did return to Ireland for a time after he received an inheritance from his grandfather that amounted to between five to $10,000, or around $127,000 to $253,000 today. There was no exact number, and you'll kind of, you'll kind of know why in a second. Like, why didn't he get it before? I wonder if it took a while to settle the estate. Yeah, but like that long? I don't know. I don't know how things work in Ireland in the 1800s. That's insane. I bet the Quaker was like, nah. (laughs) He just like kept throwing away the letters. Your inheritance is here. No, he doesn't need that. Nope, we don't need it. He needs to be a grocer. In his will, it stated, quote, I bequeath to my dear grandson, Alexander, all the rest of my property, houses, and land, with the appurtenances, appurtenances thereto, stock, crop, and chattels of every kind. The money arising from the sale of the property devised to him to be subject to the payment by my said grandson, Alexander T. Stewart, of an annuity to his grandmother, Martha Stewart, of three guineas a year during her life. Or around 181 pounds today. End quote. He's related to Martha Stewart? <laughs> he is. Wow. That's why he's the richest man. <laughs> so I couldn't tell what type of annuity this was. Because there's different kinds of annuity. Mm-hmm. I want to assume that it was monthly payments of three guineas a year. Or three guineas okay. a month. Because if it's only three guineas a year... That's like nothing. Yeah. That's that would make sense. So if it's just three guineas, because it says of three guineas a year during her life, if that's the total amount, that's really not a lot of anything. And that makes me sad. So I'm going to assume he cared about his wife a little bit more than that. And it was like (laughs) three guineas a month, you know, so. We'll go off of that because otherwise it, okay. I, get, I just get sad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's so little for your wife. 
After returning to New York, Alexander used some of his inheritance and his earnings as a tutor to open up a store on 283 Broadway, where he would sell Irish fabrics and domestic calicos. The store opened on September 1st, 1823, and was located across the street from City Hall Park, where he would open the Marble Palace years later on September 14, 1848. Okay. Alexander and Cornelia were married on October 16, 1823. Alexander was 20 and Cornelia was 21 at the time of their marriage. They would have two children together. John Stewart, <laughs> who was born in 1834, but unfortunately passed at the age of two in 1836. And a daughter named May Stewart in 1838, who passed the same year. Oh, man. I know. I was unable to find the reason for each of their deaths. That's really sad. And those are the only two children they had. But that was really hard on her, too, especially since, like... She was one of nine, and they all lived. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. The first dry goods store that Alexander opened was small. It was just 12 and a half feet wide by 30 feet deep. And a thin wall in the back of the building separated the store from where Alexander and Cornelia lived. The rent was $375 a year, or around $11,000 a year today. Dang, that's not a lot at all. <laughs> I know, it's like next to nothing right now. And in New York, wow. Right? And although he had a lot of competition from other dry goods sellers on Pearl Street, Alexander wasn't worried. He knew that people would travel to the place that offered the best prices. See, at this time, people would still haggle for the price of goods. Okay. And in an effort to beat his competition, Alexander set standard prices on everything and it was basically like just above wholesale. Nice. It was ye old Dollar Tree. <laughs> Pretty much. Dang. Okay. To drum up business, he would place cases of goods on the sidewalk in front of the store, allowing pedestrians to see for themselves what he had to offer and to drive them into the store itself, which makes a lot of sense. Smart. It wasn't long before he became one of the top retail developers in New York City. And in fact, he didn't have a sign on his business or use advertising to gain new business until May 13th, 1831, which was eight whole years after he'd opened his doors. That's impressive. And when asked for his reason, he said people who wanted to shop at his place would know where it was. Ooh, so he's even hitting up the like New Yorkers love to have exclusive spots and people by nature like knowing secrets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> New York's hottest dry goods store is Stewart's. <laughs> it's got it all. Calicos, Irish fabrics, dry goods. <laughs> Alexander's main business model was to treat each of his customers how he would want to be treated. To be fair, not cheat them or try to swindle them out of money with overpriced goods, and to make a point of becoming their friend. Customer nice. service was his top priority. Nice. Which, I mean, treating others how you want to be treated, you know. Yeah, was that a common practice of the time? Cause In New York, I'm assuming not. Because, <laughs> I'm, you know, like, it's so second nature now. Like, 
the customer is always right, that kind of mentality. Well, if you think about the fact that other places would haggle with you for price, Mm -hmm. you would imagine that the person who is haggling would want to try and cheat you out of more money. Right. They're not So they wouldn't be treating you fairly. Yeah. No, they just want your money. (laughs) So I'm assuming his concept was pretty unique given that. Yeah. Following the success of his first store, Alexander had another store, the Marble Palace, constructed between 1846 and 1848 on Broadway. This building, which would be the home of A.T. Stewart and Company, was the first official department store. That's why he's rich. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yep. How did he come up with the idea? I don't know. But it gets better. Okay. (laughs) This guy was so smart. The Marble Palace originally consisted of four stories and was located across the street from his first store. The store offered imported European women's clothing, and its second floor included full-length mirrors so women could try on the clothes and see how they looked from all angles before making a purchase. Which would be rare at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. The Marble Palace gained its name due to its Italianate design, which pulled heavily from architecture in the Renaissance and included Tuckahoe marble, which is marble that's native to New York, and Corinthian columns. Wow. So this was like a really cool building. So you would feel fancy as fuck going in here. And then you could feel fancy... Wearing European dresses on the second floor. It holds the distinction of being the first commercial building in the United States to boast such an extravagant exterior. Nice. It offered high ceilings and large windows to allow for natural light to highlight the goods. The Marble Palace, which, as I said, was one of the first big department stores, was a huge success. By 1855, just seven years after it opened, Alexander's personal fortune was estimated at $2.25 million. Back then? Back then. Uh, so around $76.6 million today. Dang. Wow. Alexander expanded his clothing offerings in 1856 to include furs. And in the 1850s, he joined several other retailers on the Ladies' Mile, which was located between Broadway and 6th Avenue. Nice. His department store was located amongst the ranks of Macy's, mm-hmm. Lord and & Taylor, and B. Altman and & Company. I just love that it's called the Ladies' Mile. Because that's where all the ladies would shop. Hey, ladies. Hey, ladies. An article in an 1899 edition of the Philadelphia Times noted the following of the department store. Quote, During the busy season... 30,000 persons would sometimes visit the store in a day, and the average was 20,000. These were composed of all classes, for while the very wealthy could spend their thousands in a single visit, as they sometimes did, the poorer classes found their advantage in buying directly of Stuart instead of the smaller stores that bought of him. Many a thrifty housewife had bought at Stuart's her piece of cloth at almost wholesale prices and transformed it with her own sewing machine into suits of clothes for her boys, end quote. Oh, nice. That's awesome that he was able to, 
you know, appeal to everybody still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alexander's business continued to flourish during the American Civil War. Through government contracts, he supplied uniforms to the Union Army and the Navy. Wow. That's a huge deal. Scoring mm -hmm. contracts like that. In 1862, Alexander built his Iron Palace, a six-story cast iron building with a glass dome skylight and grand emporium. Ooh. He employed a staff of 2,000 people who worked in his 19 different departments, some of which included silks, dress goods, carpets, and toys. The Iron Palace was located near Grace Church and occupied a large portion of the city block. It actually took up almost an entire city block, this building. Jeez. By 1877, the Iron Palace had expanded its business to include 30 unique departments to offer even more items, such as bedding and upholstery. That's insane. And it wasn't just the women of New York that enjoyed shopping at A.T. Stewart & Company. Women all over the country were interested in the wares that Alexander offered. So he set up a mail-order business in 1868. Jeez, he's really... I'm just... This is blowing my mind. I, I didn't know who he was, and he made the department store in catalogs mm -hmm. Jeez. the mail order business began after alexander started to receive letters from women in rural areas all over the country asking to purchase some of his merchandise alexander responded to these letters and the orders they contained he not only sent out the items that had been requested he also paid for the postage to have them sent to the consumer oh that's so nice that's a big deal yeah. It's a big deal now. People don't do stuff without free shipping. I know, right? After the women received their items, they would send in payment for the goods. By 1876, just eight years later, Alexander had hired 20 mail clerks to handle the mail order business. That year alone, he netted $500,000, or $14 million today, just from the success of his mail order business. Insane. And payments after they already received the goods. Mm-hmm. Crazy. The success of this program gained so much national attention that it wasn't long before other department stores, such as Sears, <laughs> Montgomery Ward, and Spiegel's got into the mail order game. Nice. Alexander didn't just dabble in department stores. He also got into the railroad business. I mean, if you got money, it was a good option. Mm-hmm. Who's like uh, investing into the internet? <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's a series of tubes. I like tubes. I like tubes. Here's money. <laughs> Alexander incorporated the Central Railroad of Long Island in 1871, which was completed just a couple years later in 1873. Once finished, it became part of the Long Island Railroad System in 1876. All right. Alexander built the first of the infamous Grand Palaces on Fifth Avenue between 1869 and 1870, designed by architect John Kellum. While the bulk of Fifth Avenue was nothing but brownstone row houses, the Stewart home boasted a marble facade in the French Second Empire style <laughs> and was fireproof. Nice. Very important when having wares. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
The home consisted of three floors and an attic, and the main parlor ran the full length of Fifth Avenue. Jeez. Right? Oh my god. The building was set back from the sidewalk by a light well, allowing natural sunlight into the service areas located in the basement. So like where the laundry was and things yeah, like that. Yeah, thank God. Give your peon some light. You're in the dark. <laughs> At this time, Alexander was estimated to have an annual income of $1 million, or $22 million today. Jeez. That's crazy. A year. Insane. Alexander passed away on April 10th, 1876, at the age of 72. Prior to his passing, Alexander set up his own manufacturing facilities in order to supply his wholesale and retail businesses. Thanks to the mills, which were based in both New York and New England, he was able to produce his own woolen fabric and employ thousands of workers. That's awesome. Despite what people would say about him, Alexander cared deeply about his employees. He was in the process of building the village of Garden City at Hempstead Plains, Long Island, prior to his death. Oh. It was designed to provide comfortable and affordable housing. Further evidence of his philanthropic nature can be found in the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives article, where there's a quote about Alexander that states, quote, In 1847, the Great Potato Famine was forcing Irishmen to take the option of going to America seriously, and many did, along with great numbers of Germans, too. When his fellow Irishmen needed help, Alexander filled a ship with goods to donate and sent it over to Belfast, and he offered free passage back with promises of jobs to all his Irish compatriots, end quote. That's very nice. Following his death, Cornelia had several buildings constructed to honor his memory, such as St. Paul's School and the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City. So she continued making sure that that housing development and that community, that it continued to be there. That's awesome. I was worried that that was going to be kaput. At the time of his death, Alexander Turney Stewart was one of the richest men in New York, coming in behind a Vanderbilt and Astor with an estimated worth of $50 million, or $1.4 billion today. Jeez. And unlike the other two, he made his fortune in retail instead of real estate. That's impressive. So a lot of people that kind of came from old money mm -hmm. kind of looked down on him like, yep. uh, you, you, you know. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Six of the original 24 clerks who started when A.T. Stewart and Company first opened its doors in 1836 were still working for the company at the time that Alexander passed. To show his gratitude to them for their hard work and dedication, he left each of them $250,000, or $7 million today, in his will. Holy crap. Could you imagine? He was really... Just a really nice guy. And his mom left him. <laughs> Hell, mom. <laughs> Peace out. Hashtag blessed. Gross. Despite this, many people believe that Alexander was a bit of a Scrooge, as stories had made the rounds that he'd once fired a carpenter for losing a single nail and that he'd sued the builder of his Fifth Avenue mansion into bankruptcy following the construction delays as a result of the Civil War. I will note that he did not 
set aside any sort of charitable donations of any kind other than to his loyal employees and his will. Okay. So you can take that as you will. Yeah, but he also... But that doesn't mean that he didn't do stuff while he was alive. He invested a lot in the community, so I wonder if he considered all that other stuff to be his charitable donation. So instead of donating money to people who he doesn't know what they're going to do with it, Mm -hmm. he would do what he thought was right with the money. Mm -hmm. Not saying that that's the case, but it is a possibility. Mm -hmm. More evidence of this was noted in the 1899 The Philadelphia Times article as follows. Quote, The personal habits of Mr. Stewart, like those of George P. Peabody, and many other representative men who have attained vast wealth were simple and free from ostentation. Those who have means sufficient to buy everything care far less for super, super, superfluous superflu, superfluities than those who have to count each dollar as it comes and goes. Hence, it is said of A.T. Stewart that he dressed plainly and well in the fashion of the time, but that he discarded all such ornaments as diamond pins, watch chains, and fancy finger rings, end quote. I like this guy. So just kind of a down-to-earth guy. Yeah. Mr. Rogers, if he had money. Mm-hmm. Cornelia had to battle countless long-lost relatives in court over Alexander's fortune. I'm sure she did. As well as claims regarding Cornelia's rather hasty decision to transfer the vast dry goods business over to Judge Hilton in 1876, the same year that her husband passed. She sold the entire business venture to Judge Hilton for $1 million, or around $28 million today, and he continued the business under the name of E.J. Denning and Company. So Judge Hilton, he had been appointed as Cornelia's trustee. Okay. In Alexander's will, so that if any legal things came up, he could assist her with that. Because I'm sure he knew that when he passed, there was going to be a lot of people coming out oh, of the I'm sure he, to to get his I'm money. I'm sure he did. Yeah. So, I would hope so. And I guess he was a really good family friend. So he was like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm gonna, I want you to make sure that my wife's taken care of after I pass and make sure nobody swindles her. Yeah. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I've often struggled with gut health and proper nutrition, which made me wonder what sort of vitamins and minerals I may be missing that my body really needs. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I drink my AG1 right away in the morning as a great way to get my day started. As someone who suffers from food allergies, I appreciate the fact that it's so lifestyle friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, the vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Not only that, but the subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D which is so important, especially in Minnesota, where I'm from, where we don't get as much sunlight. For less than $3 a day, you can invest in your health. That's cheaper than a daily coffee habit. If you don't want to take my word for it, check out the over 7,000 five-star reviews that Athletic Greens has received. It's not just about the fact that I'm taking better care of my body. Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company that gives back as well. For every purchase they receive, 
They donate to organizations that help supply nutritious foods to children in need, including No Kid Hungry. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. <clears throat> hear ye, hear ye, the dishonorable widow Abigail will now speak. Attention all weirdos, losers, rednecks, white trash, aliens, outcasts, outliers, sluts, whores, gangsters, thugs, poors, and anyone else who the world and society don't care about. I have a podcast for you. Come join me at the Manic Pixie Weirdo where we talk about all the different kinds of relationships we have in our lives. From movies to math and suicide hotlines to sex. Join us every Saturday for a new episode featuring yours truly and other smarter folk. We need you and we want you with us. So come join us at the Manic Pixie Weirdo where we accept, respect, and value you. Listen on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh yeah, be kind and stay weird. So at this point, you're probably wondering when the crime portion of the show is going to kick in. <laughs> the judge? Because Alexander was a pretty cool guy. Yeah. On on paper. Mm-hmm. So hold on to your butts because here's where shit gets crazy. All of the Irish people were indentured servants. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. The tomb of Alexander was broken into sometime between 9 p.m. on November 6th and the morning of November 8th, 1878, and his body was stolen. What? Why? I don't know. At this point, he'd been buried for Mm -hmm. two years and almost seven months at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. Somebody was like, let's just take him. (laughs) I guess. The discovery was made by the assistant sexton, Frank Parker, who noticed a fresh pile of dirt in the middle of the graveyard. Frank and several other clergymen decided to investigate the area, and they were able to move the flat tombstone that covered the Stewart family crypt, and then lower Frank down into it so he could see if anything was missing. That's terrifying. I would not, I would not want to be Frank. No. I'm sorry. Sorry, Frank. He discovered that not only was a silver nameplate missing, so was the body of Alexander himself. <laughs> sorry. And even though grave robbing wasn't uncommon, it was usually the bodies of the freshly deceased and the poor that were stolen from medical students. Yeah. Not someone who had been dead for nearly three years and pretty famous. Yeah. Thankfully, it wasn't hard to follow the trail of the grave robbers. (laughs) As there was a trail of foul-smelling stains that led to the stone porch before continuing on to the iron fence. Disgustingly, a few pieces of rotten flesh were pierced onto the spikes at the top of the fence. Oh, I was hoping in three years he'd just be bones. Nope. 
Not yet. Because he was in a crypt. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Preserved him. A little bit. A little bit. (laughs) But he wasn't embalmed. (laughs) Detectives found further evidence at the scene. A shovel, lamp, old copy of the Herald newspaper, a wooden board, and a length of woman's stocking. Perhaps the most puzzling of all was the fact that the 11th Street Gates padlock, which was discovered on the sidewalk, was intact and hadn't been forced open, which meant that the perpetrators had a key. Uh-oh. Detectives determined that the thieves had used the newspaper to wipe off their hands after handling the decaying remains. <laughs> and the fact that the paper was dry, even though there had been a light rain during the night, gave them a timeline. The storm had ended around 3 a.m. on November 7th, and an eyewitness had stated that they had seen a delivery wagon parked across the street from the cemetery around 3.30 a.m. Yeah. In a rather odd twist, Alexander's remains had actually been scheduled to be exhumed and reinterred later that week at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City. Okay. If you'll remember... Garden City was the brainchild of yeah. Alexander as a low-income housing community for his staff. So they were just going to move his body there? Yeah, to bury him in the graveyard there. Yeah, but like, he's already... Just let him sleep. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Many newspaper reporters described the area as Stewart's folly when construction began, and the public was shocked when Cornelia dedicated $1 million dollars or $28 million today, to the building of a cathedral, excuse me, in Garden City in honor of her late husband. Okay, so people didn't think it was going to happen, and they were surprised when Yeah, Yeah, they were like, "Uh, this housing community is not going to go anywhere. And then she was like, yes, it is. You're (laughs) going to build a motherfucking church. Bam! And then, like, slaps down a million dollars. Okay. Detectives instructed Cornelia to wait until she was contacted by the robbers, likely for a ransom. Mm -hmm. The majority of Alexander's vast fortune was, understandably, left to his wife Cornelia, with Judge Henry Hilton appointed as her trustee, as I mentioned. Judge Hilton told the New York Times that they would pay a $25,000, or $692,000 today, reward for any information that led to the capture of the criminals. Over 700 letters were sent in to Judge Hilton, Cornelia, and the police, not to mention hundreds more that were submitted to the New York Herald in the personal section of the paper. Each one claimed to know something about the case. Of course. And I forgot to put it in here, but apparently there were a lot of, like, spiritualists who kept claiming... That they were talking to Alexander and they knew where his body was of and all this stuff. Yeah. You know, the usual nut jobs. Mm-hmm. New York Police Department Inspector Duke received a ransom letter written in the typical ransom letter fashion with the cutout newspaper letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny. Stating, quote, in eight hours, I will be in Canada with A.T. Stewart's body. <laughs> Which- okay, we're going to go down Niagara Falls. We're going to put him in a, bu- in a barrel. And it's like, how do you know that letter was going to get opened right away? Yeah. And it doesn't give any information on how to get in touch with you. Also, why? Yeah. 
Another letter that was published in the Herald stated that the body would be returned to Cornelia if she agreed to donate $500,000 or $14 million today to charity. Okay, that's really weird. Mm-hmm. This one made me chuckle. <laughs> charity is a is a trash can in the alley of <laughs> Parking Grand. <laughs> charity is my sister. <laughs> right. Put the money in the charity box. Two small-time criminals confessed to committing the theft after they were they were interrogated by police. Henry Vreeland and William Burke. Stop. (laughs) Like of Burke and Hare? No, but it just, it was a funny like coincidence that his last name was Burke. He's like, my cousin was successful. Thought I'd give it a go. I can totally sell a dead body. Totally realized it's gross. And so I didn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I didn't realize how badly they smelled. <laughs> what am I going to do with this stinky body? Gross. Get it out. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It was me. <laughs> Get it away. <laughs> so Henry and William offered to show the police where the body had been hidden in Chatham, New Jersey. But once they were told they would be facing jail time instead of getting any sort of reward, they quickly clammed up. Why would you think you would get a reward? If I show you what, like I did it, right? But if I give him back, do I get the money? (laughs) (laughs) No. No, bitch. (laughs) But like, what if I give him back? (laughs) (laughs) Also, is that town in New Jersey so smelly that they had a hard time finding him? Nobody said it smells extra, like, deathy in this area. Crazy. Either way, no evidence ever tied the pair to the crime, so they were never formally arrested or charged. Sad. After weeks had gone by with no word on where his remains might actually be, Cornelia was advised to give up the search. In January 1879, the postmaster of New York, Paul Henry Jones, received a letter from a man named Romain from Montreal. Oh my god, he was in a barrel! <laughs> <laughs> he did go down Niagara Falls. Oh no! <laughs> it's like a splash mountain ride. <laughs> oh no. Just wanted to give him a final thrill. In a barrel. You know what? He needed a, a waterfall. He needed a vacation. I was doing him a favor. Romaine claimed to have the body of Alexander Stewart and asked the postmaster to be his negotiator and attorney. What? Well, because postmaster generals actually do have a lot of like legal power. So he could have been right. his attorney. When Paul asked for proof, which good on you, Paul, he was sent a package that contained the missing silver nameplate that okay, had also good. been stolen from the family <laughs> crypt. It's a finger. <laughs> he received a hand. <laughs> it was a hand the package that was, was wet in the form of a thumbs up. It's me. <laughs> it's really me, Paul. It's me. Remember when I used to do a thumbs up like this? Yeah. <laughs> When Paul met with Judge Hilton and investigators regarding the evidence, 
Judge Hilton refused to cooperate and negotiations broke down. Yeah, I bet he did. Like she's been through enough. He told me to take care of her. Not his gross body. Mm -hmm. My gross body. Yeah. Go haunt Niagara Falls. Ooh, yeah, it's so roll. wet here. <laughs> Get in the barrel. <laughs> I'd go buy a raincoat from A.T. Stewart's and Company. <laughs> Five years after Alexander's death, in 1881, the empire he had created, Stewart and Company, filed for bankruptcy. That was quick. Mm-hmm. What happened? I don't know. What happened, Judge? Because he was the one who had the business, right? Mm-hmm. He was the one that had the business, so he's the one that ran it into the ground, basically. Gross. According to a memoir published in 1887 by the former New York Police Department police chief, in 1884, Cornelia reopened negotiations with the robbers. She offered them $20,000, or $604,000 today, and they sent her a map of the Hudson Valley showing where they had buried Alexander. Okay. On the night that the ransom was to be paid, Cornelia, in the company of her nephew, went to the appointed spot and were greeted by a group of masked men who provided them with a piece of velvet coffin cloth and a bag of bones. After they finished counting up the ransom money, they rode off and Alexander's bones were laid to rest in a private ceremony in Garden City in 1885. So he went from fleshy to a bag of bones. In two years. He was dug up in 78, and this was 85. So yeah, he would have been bones by now. Okay. Cornelia continued to live at the Fifth Avenue residence, as well as the Grand Union Hotel in Saratoga Springs, New York, which she had inherited, I'm assuming, from her side of the family. Yeah. She died October 25th, 1886, at the age of 84, from pneumonia. Hmm. Following her death, Judge Hilton rented out the Stewart residence on Fifth Avenue to the Manhattan Club. The stunning building was razed to the ground in 1901 in order to make way for the building of the Knickerbocker Trust Company. Gross. Hate it. In 1896, John Wanamaker purchased the Iron Palace and rebranded it as Wanamaker's. John had been a huge admirer of Alexander's work ethic during his life, stating, quote, his personal attention to the details of the business. He could have had others to look after the details. They have to be looked after, but few attend to sweeping up. And that's what Stewart did, end quote. Okay, but like your name isn't as good, so get out. <laughs> the New York Sun newspaper purchased the Marble Palace in 1917, and turned it into their main offices. Just under 50 years later, the building was classified as a landmark by the city of New York. Nice. There are many who claim that the story of Cornelia meeting with the thieves and retrieving her husband's remains is a lie. Yeah. Judge Hilton's personal assistant, Herbert Ancy, stated in an interview in 1890 that the body was never recovered. He even went on to say, quote, Stewart himself wouldn't have paid the ransom, end quote. Oh, he absolutely wouldn't have. No, he wouldn't no. have. He would have been like, nah, not worth it. Bye. To date, Alexander Stewart remains the seventh richest American of all time, 
and is remembered as the Merchant Prince. And in case you're wondering, even though Mr. and Mrs. Stewart are said to be interred next to one another in Garden City, they in fact are not buried beneath their marker at the Cathedral of the Incarnation. Yeah, I bet. Bet they're hiding them. Yep. It's said that each of their bodies are buried in secret locations to prevent future grave robbing attempts. Yeah, I would hope so. And that's Alexander Turney Stewart. Bananas. The richest guy you never knew. The merchant prince. I first learned about him because of an article about how his grave was robbed. Yeah. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, why is he so important? <laughs> right. Why do people care? Hence the rabbit hole. And that's why we're here. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. This week's podcast plug is the Manic Pixie Weirdo podcast. The premise? Relationships, but not just with people. All relationships. From math to Marvel, Abigail talks about it all. Whether a solo episode on a specific topic or a joint venture with a guest, Abigail talks about the variety of ways we interact with things and each other. Nice. And we will have a link to her show in the show notes. Awesome. What's something good you'd like to share? We had my future stepdaughter over this weekend, and we played a lot of games outside, and it was really nice out. And I found out she likes rocks just as much as I do. (laughs) And she has a rock tumbler at home, and I almost was that person of like but they haven't like cracked it open yet and i just mm-hmm. wanted to be like well if you want to ask your parents if they uh want to bring it here we've got rocks <laughs> mm-hmm. that need tumbling but I, I was like no i can't do that that's really tacky like the stepmom asking for yeah real mom's things <laughs> Even though it's not open, it doesn't matter. That's not cool. So yeah. I'm really glad I didn't open my mouth about that one, except for right <laughs> now in front of a lot of people. It's fine. It's okay. You don't know her. It's fine. Shut up. You don't know where she lives. Shut up. You don't know. Yeah, we had a, we had a lot of fun. She um, She had a good time and we did a lot of crafting and drawing and it was just really nice. It was a nice little break. What about you? So mine's going to be kind of silly, and I kind of mentioned it at the beginning of the episode, but I discovered what I think might be my new favorite hummus. Okay. And it's called Baba's, B-A-B-A. Okay. And it's got this hilarious logo of this guy with, like, curly hair. And if you look at the packaging, there's, like, a cutout of, like, the label that is, like, the cutout of his hair. It's super cute. Anyway... We went to Cub and we got dill pickle hummus. Yeah. Which is the goat. And I have almost eaten the entire container by myself. <laughs> yeah. And pickle it is hummus delicious. Is for real. So, so if you are able to get Baba's, 
by you and you enjoy hummus, I highly recommend that you try it out because it is delicious. Ooh, they have a zatar flavor. Yeah, it's Jerusalem style. Really smooth. Delicious. Caramelized onion. Spicy licious shirasha. Sriracha. Ooh, Andrew Zimmern likes it. There you go. Oh, if Andrew Zimmern likes it. That's all you need to know. Then it's got to be good. Yeah. You actually can't be a resident of Minnesota unless you like Andrew Zimmern. So they just like yeah. throw you at Wisconsin if you don't like it. Go over there. Did I tell you that I met him once? Yeah. Yeah. He, he would go to the U all the time, too. And people would be like, open your wallet for us. Research. He is a very nice man. He is very nice. Anyway, if you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. A great way to support the show, if you can't do so financially, is to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, and you can now leave ratings on Spotify really wherever you get your podcasts if you're able to leave a review and rating we would appreciate it absolutely this review comes from pod chaser and it's from the ladies fright podcast hello and they say as someone who is into true crime and into history and likes to laugh this podcast hits the spot they dig up some of the most interesting cases and are well researched in the topic love it thanks thank you If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me A Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. As far as TeePublic goes, we had a sale last week that I didn't mention on the show because I didn't know about it, but I did mention it on social media. So hopefully you went in and you checked out the shop because I can't, I can't turn back time. Nope. But I would if I could find a way. Yeah. I take back all the words that it hurt you and you'll say, <laughs> I want to buy that merch. <laughs> it's 35% off. All right. I'll turn off my share. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.